Hi everyone, thanks for listening in to the rounds table as always. This week we're going to be playing one of our favorite previous episodes, and we'll be back to you with new content next week. Thanks very much. Hello, and welcome to the rounds table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. We're hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Travis Murdoch, who is a gastroenterologist at the University of Calgary. Hey, Travis, how's it going? It's going great. Nice to nice to hear from you, Amol. Yeah, we talked about you a lot the last couple of weeks, actually, Travis. I don't know if you listened or heard, but uh, you got quite a few shout outs. You may want to go back and check that we did not besmirch your name. Uh-oh. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, before we get started today, I'd like to make one quick announcement, which is that we are currently in the process of attempting to evaluate the product that we are providing to you, our dear listeners. And so we would be very grateful if you could take five minutes out of your day, go to healthydebate.ca, and then please fill out our evaluation survey. That would be very, very helpful. Okay, so today, Travis and I are going to be talking about, first, whole exome sequencing, and then secondly, about devices for left atrial appendage closure. And does this spell the end of blood thinners to prevent stroke? So Travis, kick us off and talk to us about whole exome sequencing. Great. Thanks, Amol. I'm really excited about this paper and actually this entire uh, volume of JAMA. Uh, The paper I'm going to talk about today examines the role of exome sequencing. That is, sequencing the protein coding part of the genome in diagnosis of patients with suspected genetic disorders. Now, this was part, this was a clinical series of 2,000 patients. It's published in JAMA on the 18th of October, 2014. And was a, as I mentioned, was a clinical series of 2,000 pa- patients referred for suspected genetic disorders. And uh, this was a, there was a variety of different disorders, neurologic, neurologic plus other organs, uh, patients who had specific neurological findings such as seizures or ataxia, and then patients who had suspected non-neurologic disorders. And they describe a diagnosis rate of in 25% of patients. This was largely pediatric patients, and and they describe it using this technique of exome sequencing. Now, to those of you who aren't familiar with this, the exome is about 1% of the genome, and uh, we think that it's some of the most important bits of the genome because it's the part that ends up coding for proteins. What's especially interesting is that 58% of the mutations found were novel, so not previously described. And furthermore, 30% of the diagnosis, diagnoses were made in genes that have only been discovered as uh, causes of genetic disorders since 2011. So it really harkens to the explosion of new information that's been produced by genetic medicine. What do you think, Amol? So I think that that part is really interesting. It's It sounds really fascinating that we're finding new explanations for long and well-described phenotypes, right? And I guess my question is, first of all, is this going to affect disease classification or disease descriptions? Are we going to decompose, I guess, what we previously thought were si- single conditions into multiple different conditions? Well, I certainly think that's the case. Part of this uh, relies on really good phenotyping, that is, a really good uh, documentation of the clinical manifestations. But certainly, we're starting to recognize that uh, some diseases that we would classify together based on a, an end clinical manifestation that's sometimes, you know, vague. So even something like ataxia could, 
be caused by a number of different issues with the neurological system or a number of different genes. So I certainly think that we're going to end up with a lot more different conditions. Yeah, so that part of it is, I think, really interesting and exciting to me. Maybe you can take a second to just walk us through exactly what we're talking about here to make it a little clear. So my understanding is that these patients were identified by physicians as having some kind of phenotype that's likely consistent with a congenital abnormality or a genetic abnormality. And then they were referred to special clinics, and then they had whole exome sequencing done. Can you tell me how is this different from the kinds of genetic testing we would have done previously? Sure. So I think the major difference is that previous to this, we would use largely what's called a candidate gene approach, which is where you take a known genes that are known to cause a a genetic syndrome, and you take a patient that has symptoms that would be consistent or symptoms and signs that are consistent with that, and then you, you sequence only specific genes. Now, it gets even more complicated than that because in some cases you're only looking for known mutations in specific genes. And as you could imagine, uh, many of these rare conditions uh, uh, are caused by rare genetic variants. And so by looking for only those that are known, those, those specific variants in genes, we miss out on a lot of potential mutations that are deleterious. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so I guess my next question is, have there been any examples of how this has been really successful or pointed to a really important finding? Certainly in, in a few different ways. Now, this is a good example of it being used in the clinical setting, but exome sequencing has really become a, a central method that people are using uh, for gene discovery, both in rare conditions as well as in more common conditions. And, uh, you know, there's a number of examples of this. Um, one in particular, a colleague of mine is involved in uh, at uh, Toronto Hospital for Sick Children is looking at patients who have very early onset inflammatory bowel disease. So in that case, they've actually found a number of genes that are involved in both in the pathogenesis likely of inflammatory bowel disease, but uh, severe sort of uh, loss of function mutations or or significant mutations can cause early onset disease. So it's, uh, that, that particular um, methodology uh, can be beneficial both, both to understand these patients with, with rare, rare phenotypes or rare manifestations, but likely will also inform our understanding of, of the disease in a greater way. Interesting. So Travis, help me understand here where the current clinical application is. So for these patients who were referred to their molecular genetics or medical genetics clinic. How does this help improve their care today? Or are we talking all about sort of future possibilities? Well, I think that's really a value statement uh, in many cases because lots of these conditions, unfortunately, we don't have treatment for. So uh, the question is whether or not knowing what causes a disease in an individual is of value. And I think that it's, in many cases, it's a value to the family in terms of family planning. Uh, it's, it's also potentially valuable um, for future treatments. Now, there are certain diseases that are rare and that, you know, for instance, uh, Fabry's disease, which they found in a patient where you can give supplementation and prevent the disease from worsening. So it's certainly actionable in, in many patients, but, uh, but in some, it, it more relates to prognostication, to family planning, and to, um, to the idea that knowing is better than not knowing, I guess. 
Yeah, I guess so. Help me understand in this patient population, they did molecular uh, testing or did the whole exome sequencing for all of the patients. And for about a quarter, they were able to find a molecular diagnosis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And if you split it up, it was about 50% of the patients that had a what we call it an autosomal dominant, so a dominant mutation. So they had one copy of that that uh, deleterious genetic defect. Uh, and about 35%, it was autosomal recessive. And then there's obviously X-linked. If you go back to your uh, first-year genetics course. Yeah, so <laughs> well, I guess going back to my first-year genetics course, that brings up two questions. First is, because many first-year genetic students can come to a diagnosis of differentiating between autosomal dominance, autosomal recessive, X-linked inheritance patterns, why does knowing the exome actually improve your clinical management if none of the genes are actionable? So I guess that's my first question. And then my second question is, were most of the genes that they found actually diseases that were associated with classical Mendelian inheritance? Or were they sort of more complicated inheritance patterns where it would be difficult to elucidate the inheritance? And so knowing the gene actually helps. Well, uh, to answer your first question, I guess um, the inheritance pattern can only really be done in retrospect. So if you had a family that like, who had say four or five children, uh, and then you, you know that you know, one of them developed the disease, uh, then, you know, then you can go back and say, well, this is likely a recessive pattern, or you have multiple generations. Now, some of these mutations may be new mutations in, in one generation. And so it, it does let us understand, uh, I guess, inheritance, pa- in, inheritance patterns uh, moving forward from that regard. Now, th- to answer your second question, I guess I can partially answer it by saying that one of the particularly interesting findings was one of mosaicism. Now, with this new um, high-throughput high sequencing technology, you actually end up sequencing parts of the genome multiple times, say up to 50 times in some cases. And so you can get better resolution uh, by doing that, both of areas of the genome that you're looking at, because there's errors whenever you, whenever you uh, sequence it, but also uh, potentially for mosaicism. So that's when you have one individual has multiple different genetic makeups. And they did de- demonstrate that in five of the patients. So I think that was a particularly interesting finding that, um, that they, they wouldn't have found this, say, uh, uh, even five, ten years ago if we didn't have the high-throughput sequencing that we have now. Okay, great, Travis. Thanks for, as always, providing us a window into sort of the cutting edge of medical science. And it certainly sounds like whole exome sequencing could have a number of potential implications. And I guess we talked about it in the context of genetic diseases or congenital conditions, but presumably there's applications outside of this world, perhaps in the chronic disease world. I I definitely think so. There's actually a few papers coming out on cardiovascular disease, for instance. So I think it's going to be a quite a fruitful area in the next five years. Okay, thanks, Travis. So let's change gears. So I want to talk about the results, the long-term results of the PROTECT AF trial, which were recently published in JAMA. And this study is a long-term follow-up of a randomized controlled trial, which showed that left atrial appendage closure devices are superior to warfarin in preventing strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation. So let's unpack that. 
So oral anticoagulation, as we all know, is historically the mainstay of treatments to prevent strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation. And what we also know is that strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation often originate in a particular portion of the heart, and that's the left atrial appendage, a small outpouching of the left atrium in which blood clots form, which provides a source of the clots that then end up causing uh, strokes. So a few years ago now, people came up with the idea of instead of systemically anticoagulating people, what if we just close the appendage where the clots most frequently form? So the original PROTECT-AF trial, one of the first trials studying these devices, was published in 2009, and it showed that closing the left atrial appendage was non-inferior to warfarin in preventing strokes in patients with non-valvular AFib and who had a CHAD score of at least one, so who would meet indications for anticoagulation. Despite that, there remained some doubt about the initial results in part because of early complications from the procedure and because of a wide non-inferiority margin that was initially set. And so this study is the long-term follow-up to that trial to try to dispel some of those doubts. So this was an unblinded, randomized study of 700 patients at 59 centers, largely in the United States, but also in Europe, 463 patients were randomized to receive a device and 245 to the warfarin group. The trial was designed to test whether the device is non-inferior to warfarin, but they also defined a criterion to demonstrate superiority. And the primary outcome was a composite of stroke, systemic embolism, or cardiovascular death. What they found in the four-year follow-up that they report here is that there were fewer events in the device group. So in the device group, 8% of the patients had a primary event, whereas in the warfarin group, 14% had a primary event. So this is an absolute risk reduction of 6%, meaning a number needed to treat of approximately between 15 and 20 patients to avoid one event of either stroke, systemic blood clot, or cardiovascular death. This finding met the criteria for both non-inferiority and superiority. So what do you think, Travis? Well, I think it's really uh, it's a very interesting study. And in particular, not to sound too much like uh, Kuhn, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a paradigm shift, right? It's a, bit, it's a different way of looking at a problem. And uh, I mean, if you look over the past five years, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of leaps forward in terms of oral anticoagulants. But I think this is a really interesting way of looking at this issue. So, and I'm surprised by actually how, how great the results are. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think that uh, two things give me pause. So the first is that obviously this is a very impressive finding. And, uh, you know, if this is in fact to be believed, this could represent a marked shift in the way we care for patients with atrial fibrillation. The thing that sort of, uh, I guess, tugs at my brain a little bit is, if this is the case, why have we not seen it disseminated into practice more rapidly and more widely? That's a good point. Um, do you think there's technical issues? Uh, or do you mean availability of this uh, in certain centers and not others? I mean, I've, I've not seen it being used in Canada personally, but... 
Yeah, so this is a, I think, I think that's a, an important point. There's a few really important points. So one is, I think it's impressive. This trial was conducted at 59 centers. So, you know, that speaks to the generalizability of the procedure. Having said that, in Toronto, I only know of two physicians, maybe there's a couple more, but there's a handful of physicians who can actually do this procedure. Um, and it is pretty involved. So they have this self-expanding device that has like a nickel titanium frame and a polyester covering, and you implant it, thread it up into the left atrial appendage. The thing that's interesting is then you need to do two things. So first is that patients who get the device need to go on anticoagulation for 45 days, a combination of aspirin and Coumadin in these patients, um, in order to allow the device to properly implant and endothelialize. So there's a short term where all the patients get anticoagulated. But then what you need to do is, in this trial at least, what they did was they performed a transesophageal echo to make sure that there was no clot on the device and that the device was properly sealed. And they performed this a number of times after the device was implanted. Uh, and only if both of those criteria were met, no clot and the device properly sealed, would they stop the warfarin for patients. And about 10 to 15% of the patients actually stayed on warfarin for the duration of the trial because they didn't meet those criteria. Right, I see. Now, that sounds pretty involved. I guess the question is, is this going to be cost-effective versus something like warfarin or maybe more importantly, some of the newer oral anticoagulants that they didn't examine in the study? Yeah, that's right. So we've looked into this, and there's a few papers about this. Compared to warfarin, it does seem like the papers about this suggest that it's cost-effective. And I think you have some of the numbers at your fingertips, right? Yeah, actually, uh, I, I, we were, I was looking this up a bit earlier. There's a paper from Sunnybrook um, by Singh and colleagues, and they suggest that it, that it is cost-effective. Uh, what they, they looked at the average discounted lifetime cost, and they, they found it was 21000 about for patients on warfarin, 25000 and change for patients taking dabigatrin, and 27000 for this procedure. So they, they found that the quality-adjusted life years were pretty similar between the, the three, but, uh, but so they, they, you know, they suggested that it was likely to be cost-effective. I guess... Uh, to, to wrap up, do you think that this is ready for prime time? Or? I mean, I think that's the million-dollar question, or I suppose if you're Boston Scientific, uh, the billion-dollar question potentially. You know, I think we'll start to see whether this makes its way into practice. There are uh, concerns about, as you say, the generalizability of this. And if you just imagine the number of patients with atrial fibrillation, what is the feasibility of having all of those patients undergo an interventional cardiological procedure when, you know, the capacity is obviously nowhere near there in the system right now. So I can't imagine this being widely disseminated, you know, anytime soon, but certainly perhaps for certain patients. Right. Yeah. Uh, so why, why don't you wrap it up for us and uh, give us a summary of this paper? Amal. Yeah. So this was a long-term follow-up of the PROTECT-AF trial, which showed that in a population of about 700 patients who were, I'll take a little parenthetical comment here, who were an average age of 72 years old, they were 70% male, they were 90% white, and they had a mean CHAD score, so their risk of stroke, of about 2.2, with 
a mean left ventricular ejection fraction of 57%. So these are people who had a moderate, at least a moderate risk of stroke uh, and who had relatively normal heart function. In this patient population, the use of a left atrial appendage closure device at four years was shown to be superior to warfarin in preventing strokes. So as always, let's move on, Travis, and let's t- wrap up our episode today by our good stuff segment. So what has caught your eye from the world of medicine this week? So I'm going to talk briefly about a really interesting paper, uh, or rather editorial in Nature, uh, published in late November. And it, it talks about the fact that over the past two years, journals have been forced to retract more than 110 papers because they were actually reviewed by the submitting author. Now, it's, it's a bit shocking, but you can imagine how uh, people can be nefarious and uh, on the internet and using digital means. So uh, one example they talk about in the paper was this uh, 14-month investigation by publishers and uh, the National Pingtung University of Education in Taiwan, which ultimately revealed that one of the authors had set up multiple accounts uh, using Scholar One. I've never, I don't know if uh, you've, any of our uh, listeners have used this. I'm sure some have. Uh, so he set up multiple accounts under different names, and then when he was submitting papers, he would suggest these names as reviewers. And he actually used this to su- successfully submit over 60 publications. And it was a pretty big deal because uh, he actually he'd also used the um, Minister of Education in Taiwan as a co-author without his consent, and the minister actually ended up resigning as well. So I I think it's a, an interesting read and. Um, Hopefully you don't get any bad ideas from it. <laughs> when you say bad, I think that's a bit of a value judgment. Good Travis. point. Good point, Amol. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks. That's really fascinating and just goes to show that uh, like all aspects of life, even the most noble of pursuits such as academic research is prone to nefarious manipulation from time to time. That's for sure. Okay. So my good stuff is an editorial in The Lancet Psychiatry which is called How to Be Good. So this editorial draws on writing from George Orwell and Charles Dickens. So Charles Dickens had the view that, quote, if men would behave decently, the world would be decent. And in response to that, Orwell pointed out that Dickens' attitude is, quote, one that at first glance looks like an enormous platitude, but... And then this is where Orwell goes on to criticize Dickens. He says he is suspicious of the view that, quote, everything can be put right by altering the shape of society. And so his argument effectively is that how can people be kinder to others if the social and health systems are not reformed in a way that is conducive to allow them to be kinder to each other? And at the same time, how can we reform health systems to be kinder if people do not want to become kinder or choose to become kinder? So the editors of The Lancet Psychiatry think that this really frames an important question in mental health and social policy, and they make an argument that psychiatrists, and I would argue as all physicians, we should strive to improve both the environment in which the care we give takes place, and also to improve the quality of lives or the individual lives of our patients. I thought it was a nice little holiday read yes and i would recommend it okay so thanks very much travis nice to talk to you as always yeah you too and i hope we see you soon 
And just before we close today, I want to make one quick announcement that it's hard to believe December is already upon us. And so we're going to be taking a little bit of a break for the winter holidays, and we'll see you back in January. Thanks again, as always, for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more from the great world of research in medicine in the near future. Have a happy holiday.